Attending Bible studies weekly here at Cornerstone has just allowed me to grow in my faith and um, just be surrounded by other sisters in Christ. And just being able to share that with women and to share that with uh, people who are non-judgmental and just took me for who I am. It was through worship at Cornerstone that I learned about the love of Christ and it was through worship at Cornerstone that I learned how to love as a Christian. I am seeing real life examples of my small group growing and I know that you can also grow by joining a small group. The reason I serve the way I do and the um, amount I do is because I believe that you will become what you surround yourself by and, and surrounding myself by Cornerstone is, is, has made a difference in my life. We're able to grow as a group, casual, come as you are. Our family serves in different ministries all around the church, all working together as a family with one common goal, to help other people hear the Lord knocking. Uh, okay, so quick question. Do we still have people waiting for seats? Is that a yes? Okay, so if you've got any seats next to you, will you raise your hand? Okay, okay. All right, so there's a couple seats. I see a few. Okay, so ushers, if you'll help. All right, there we go. Okay, again, just to remind you, the smart people don't go to this service. <laughs> they go to one of the other services where there's room. Okay, now that I've offended you, you can just... All right. All right, so let me, let me fill you in on uh, some things going on in my life right now. Uh, most of you probably know that we have an ongoing significant relationship with an orphanage over in Kenya called Haruma Children's Home. And uh, every summer we go there, we take teams. Uh, I go usually for a couple weeks. My wife, Lisa, sometimes goes for a couple months uh, to work there with the kids and work with Mama Sephora. In the process of that and of being there, uh, there was one young lady who just uh, grabbed our hearts, and it became our desire to say, could we, could we enfold her and have her part of our family? And so well over a year ago, year and a half ago, we began to say, what does that mean? What would it bring, mean to bring her to the States, let her be here and, and be with us and be us and finish her education here? And uh, that has been just a grueling uh, journey as we've gone. And if any of you follow my wife on Facebook, you know, I mean, just disappointment after disappointment and setback after setback on the, and to the point that we began as a family to pray and say, well, you know, God, have we misunderstood something? Maybe, maybe we've planned something that you didn't plan. And, and so we just had to even go back and reconsider that in prayer. And I am just thrilled to tell you this morning that just recently, all the doors that had just been slammed shut began to just swing open in almost instantaneously. And we were able to bring Sylvia here to the States to be part of our home. Matter of fact, she's uh, in, I got to introduce her to the whole service, last service. She was here in the room. Just a joy of our lives. And she's now going to be Sylvia Winters with us. And uh, we brought her into our home. So, yeah, <laughs> praise to God. We're thrilled with that. Just Super cool moment. My wife is spoiling her to death. Uh, I think my wife has decided she has a living Barbie doll now. And uh, so, all right, so here's the second part. Uh, last Sunday is probably going to be known for forever now as Diaper uh, Sunday. And, and you know how when you do something and then later on you go back and go, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I crossed a line, you know, maybe I went uh, too far. I began to think that when I got home last Sunday night and uh, I was snuggling up uh, with Lisa, and uh, she said, nah, I've got this image in my mind, and it's not going to be gone for a while. Uh, people at church this last week have walked by me kind of like this. I just don't want to remember that. 
but you remember why we did it, okay? So get off the di- remember what we were talking about. And, and what we were saying together is, is that uh, if you and I are not careful, uh, you and I have the potential to take this incredible thing that God is doing in this place, this thing that should be so wonderful and should just absolutely make Jesus famous and actually make it something that detracts from Jesus, that, that there is potential for there to be so many baby Christians in this room because so many of us have come to know Jesus since we came here together. We, over 60% of the people in this room became Christians in this room. And then, then there's a whole bunch of us on top of that who maybe had a time when we, we were just far from God. I mean, we, we knew Jesus in our past, but man, we just had checked out on everything religious and God, and we're just now coming back. There are a ton of young Christians in this room. And we said, you know, if we're not careful, as the reputation of Cornerstone goes out, the reputation will be, yeah, they're a bunch of immature, baby, stumbling around believers. And we said, you know, the only way we're going to turn that, the only way we're going to keep from being a church that's a mile wide and only an inch deep spiritually is if you and I get intentional, if you and I just get deadly serious about growing up in our faith and becoming mature believers, becoming the type of believers that Jesus would say, that's what I always hoped a Christ follower would look. And so we started that journey. And remember last week we said, look, if you want to boil it down, just kind of make this whole thing simple, there are three things that mature believers have figured out in their lives that once you figure them out, once you embrace them, instantaneously start you on that path to real maturity. And we said there's simply this, worship, grow, serve. That, that worship isn't something I do by singing. Instead, worship is whenever I put God in his right place. Whenever I say, look, look, whatever that issue is, whatever that decision is, I'll do what God wants. Because worship is when I say, God, look, I love you more than that. And I will not worship anything whether it be my job or be my children or be my finances or be my career, I won't worship anything more than I worship you. Worship, and then we said growth, that mature believers have said, look, look, I've got to be intentional about this growing up thing. I'm not going to do it passively just sitting in a chair on Sunday and hope the preacher gives me enough. I'm going to take control, I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to do something else, something beyond to add to my growth. And then the third part is, mature believers serve. Mature believers serve. That mature believers have figured out all of my talent, all of my ability that God has handed me wasn't for my glory, for my praise. That God gave me that ability hoping that I would use that to change the world, to expand the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. And that my talents are best used when I use them for the glory of God. Worship, grow, serve. So this morning, we're just going to dive into this topic of worship and just redefine it for a whole bunch of us, that it's more than just a song, that worship is what I do. It's what I place in the highest moment of my life. And if you have your Bibles, you can go with me to a passage that absolutely nails this topic dead on. And it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Now, here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. Most of us know this passage. Even if you've been away from church, you probably know this story. We learned it in Sunday school. And if you and I are not careful today, we're going to 
we're going to allow our familiarity with this story to breed contempt in our lives. And we're going to miss, we're going to think this is, this is what you teach kids in Sunday school. And the answer is today, this is actually a hugely adult conversation. And if you and I aren't careful, we'll miss, we'll miss what God is teaching in this moment about true worship. Okay? It's Genesis chapter 22. Let me I'll give you a little bit of background. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And you're familiar with the idea that Abraham had waited his entire life for a son. Matter of fact, Abraham gets to 90 years of age. His wife Sarah is at 80 years of age. And God comes and says, look, I'm going to give you a child, which was absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it was just out of... Sarah is so far beyond any capacity to bear a child. I mean, it's just a stunning promise on the part of God. An unbelievable offer. And you get in the culture that what God has just offered Abraham is huge. Because within this culture, having a child, and especially a firstborn son, lands everything. It's how your family goes on. It's how your family continues to exist and have a place. God just promised Abraham the moon. Interesting part is, is that God waits 10 years to deliver. And finally, there's a son born by the name of Isaac. He grows up to be a young man, and then this story. Because God's going to come to Abraham and say, Abraham, there's a question. There's a question that I have to have you answer to make sure that you understand worship. So let's go. It's Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Here's what it says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now let that sink for a moment. Don't, don't you dare do Sunday school on me today. How crazy is that request? I didn't even know that God would condone human sacrifice. How absolutely almost absurd is the question that God would come and say, look, I need you to go take your son, take him up on a hill, and I need you to sacrifice him to me. And if you and I don't get anything, if you, if you and I don't get anything in the moment, get how important the question is that you and I are about to answer together that God would make such a deeply and profoundly outrageous request in Abraham's life. How badly does God need to know this answer? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. I 
I think you and I read that and we go, well, wow, 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 wow. A Abraham must have been this, this guy of monstrous faith. I mean, this guy, I mean, think about it. I mean, he gets up next morning, saddles and go. I mean, wow. Th this guy must have had his relationship with God just absolutely figured out. Can I tell you that just the opposite is true? This man is a lifelong manipulator. He is a lifelong struggler with God. And every single time that God has come into his life and made a request or asked him to do something, Abraham has always tried to add it on his fingers, figure out if it made any sense with where his plans were going. And on every occasion that they didn't line up together, Abraham has tried to fix God and help him out with the project. Example. God says to Abraham, hey, go to the promised land. I'm going to make you a place there. He gets there, and lo and behold, a famine. And Abraham goes, oh, my goodness, God must be, have made a mistake. His timing was off. Something's wrong. So Abraham decides, and as best we can tell without even consulting God, I'll just go hang out in Egypt till the famine's gone. On his way to Egypt, it occurs to him, well, wait a minute. Sarah is drop-dead gorgeous. I get there. They realize that Sarah's my wife. They'll kill me to get my wife away from me. I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll talk my wife into telling them that she's my sister. See, I, God could not have possibly anticipated this. It's, I'm just helping a little bit. So they get down to Egypt, and if you know the story, you realize the Egyptians bought the story hook, line, and sinker. They were pretty sure that Sarah was the sister. So they take Sarah into Pharaoh's court to be one of his concubines. The only thing that rescues Sarah in the moment is that God intervenes. Scripture says, and we don't know for sure what it was, that he gave a horrible disease to the court of Egypt. They began to consult, and God said, hey, well, you've got another man's wife. It's Abraham's wife. In this very story, the story of Isaac, God waited 10 years. Sarah, Abraham's wife, comes to him and says, hey, you know, let, let's talk about technicalities, Abraham. God said you're going to have a son. He didn't specifically mention my name. I'll tell you what we'll do. Take my maidservant, Hagar, go sleep with her. You can have a child by her. We can help God get it done. And Abraham goes, you know, that's a plan, Sarah. Besides, Hagar was pretty good looking. And, you know. There was a son born by the name of Ishmael, who as that son grows up, there is nothing but discord and contention within the home. Ishmael goes on to be the father of what today are all the Arab nations. Isaac, the son of promise, father of Israel. And those two brothers have fought through all of time. Because, because, because Abraham is a manipulator. And Abraham fixes God. And Abraham's plans are better than God's plans. It's one of the reasons that God has to ask the question. Early the next morning, verse 3, Abraham got up and saddled the donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
And he said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will, next word, worship and then come back to you. Think about, think, think about, Abraham's getting ready to go up on a hill, take his son and offer him as a sacrifice to God and as he describes that moment, he says, I'm going to go worship. It's an interesting. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here's what I'm wondering. How long does it take Isaac? And is, I mean, I mean, at what point when dad's tying your hands behind your back going, hmm. So either, either, either this guy is absolutely clueless or he is the most obedient kid you and I have ever seen. I can't even get my kid to stay in timeout. Then he, speaking of Abraham, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. And you ready? Punchline of the passage. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You get the moment. God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, we spent, we spent a lifetime wrestling together and I just gave you the desire of your heart. I gave you a lifetime of hope in a boy. But here's what I have to know at the end of the day, Abraham. Do you worship the boy or do you worship me? If it, if it, if it came right down to it, if it came right down to it, and I asked you for the boy, would you give him to me? Would you, you ready? Worship me more than what I've given to you? It's a great question because it's a question that God is going to ask every last one of us about worship. It is worship. God in his right place. God in first place. And no other God, be it my business, be it my children, be it my schedule, be it my competing with him. 
I'm 15. I'm sitting in a fundamental, independent, Bible-believing Baptist church, which is code for the guy up front was pounding the pulpit and spitting a lot. And as I'm sitting there, I don't, I don't even remember what the guy was saying in the service. I have no clue what the sermon was on. But something in my heart tugged, and, I, and I, I just knew God was asking me to consider going into ministry. And I'm just going to, I could not have thought of a worse idea. I, what does it mean? I, I never wanted to be here. I mean, after all, preachers have all got slicked back hair, and they wear polyester leisure suits, and I weren't going to be one of them. And so I sat there that Sunday, and for the next three Sundays, with my hands gripping the pew in fear that I might lean too far forward and someone would think I was answering the altar call. And I believe if you were to go back to Gateway Baptist Church and look on that, you would find my fingerprints. And finally, the third Sunday, I walked on forward at the end of the service, because that's what they did in those days, and I went to the pastor and I said, I, I think God's calling me to ministry. And the look in his eyes said it all. Really? <laughs> Seven months later, I'm with the youth group. We're heading off to Mexico on a mission trip. And as I'm riding along in the back of that van, all of a sudden, terror struck my heart. Oh, my goodness. What if my call to ministry was a call to be a missionary? And the entire ride down, although no one else in the van knew it, I wrestled. I mean, I said, God, please, I, man, anything but a missionary. I spent the entire week down there, and I just said, look, I'm not going to look at the kids. I'm not going to think. I'm... And God just slammed me the entire week. I mean, kids were coming up and hugging on me, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. They made me think of a testimony, and everybody responded. I'm going, oh, my goodness. I got to the end of the week, and I found myself on my knees. and I said, okay, even a missionary. And it was almost instantaneous in which I heard the voice of God say, never mind. Just needed to know. You get that God's going to ask you and I that question a hundred times. What, what is it in your life? Is it your career? Is it your kids? Is it your boyfriend? What is it in your life that if I asked you to put it on the altar, if I asked you, do you love that more than you love me? What is it that has first place? What is it that you worship more than you worship me? Because if I asked you for it, your answer would be no. And God would say, I need to ask. Which is why. Which is why every time you and I come in here on a Sunday morning, it's worship. Because, because, you ready? Let's be honest, there's a hundred other things that you and I could be doing right now. There's chores that need to be done around the house. Does anybody know there's playoffs going on? We're missing pregame right now. The lake, the lake is calling my name. 
we could have slept in. You get, there's a, there's a hundred other places you and I could be right now. Some of you are going, amen, that's the first thing you said that made sense. <laughs> and what hopefully most of us did this morning, we said, no, 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 no. There may be a hundred other options, but there is nothing more important than meeting with my God. And that's why on the first day of the week, the first thing that I'm going to do is make time for my Lord. That's why coming in that door is worship. Because you and I laid on the altar everything else we could have been doing this morning and said, God, none of that is as important as being with you. Worship, right place. It's why. It's why baptism is worship. There are some of us in this room who come from other traditions, other backgrounds, and, and, and our parents had us baptized as kids. And, and now that we've figured out a relationship with Jesus Christ and we've asked him to come into our heart, if we were to have believer's baptism, I mean baptism after I made a decision, man, mom, mom, and, they, mom and dad, they wouldn't understand. I mean, they'd be heartsick if I did that. Possibly. See, some of us in the room are going, look, 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 look. You don't get it. See, I used to hang out with the other crowd, and we used to stand around and make fun of Christians. And, you know, now my wife's got me coming to church and, and all of that, and I can kind of excuse that because I can tell my friends, you know, no, 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 she's making me. But if I actually got baptized, if I stood up publicly and said, I'm a follower of they would know. They'd know I joined the other team. They would. That's why it would be worship. Because you would be saying in that moment, look, look, look. If I have to choose between the opinion of my parents or the opinion of my friends and the opinion of God, I choose God right place worship it, it's why when you and I give our 10% tithe it's worship you, you ever wonder why God asked for 10% I mean if, if you and I if I get it right he doesn't need it last time I checked he's got a pretty good house kind of pops around everywhere, doesn't even need a car. Why 10%? Because God knew it'd be terrifying. He, he knew that you and I couldn't give 10% of our income and not worship. Because in that moment when you and I wrote out the check, when you and I made that decision, our hearts would be going boom, 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 boom. We'd be going, do you realize what I could buy with this? You realize how, how much I could pay down bills with this? You get that Visa's not going to get paid and they're going to be mad at me over this? And it's why when you and I take our income and the first check we write is to him, what you and I are saying in that moment is, look, God, God, there is nothing I can buy with this money 
this 10% that I love more than you. There's not a sweater. There's not a pair of sunglasses. There's nothing. There's not a car. There's nothing I can buy with this that I love more than you. And you and I say that to him and remind our hearts of that every time we give. It's why it's worship. Service. Serving God is worship. Because you and I are inclined to say, well, look, 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 that's my ability, that's my talent. I mean, that's what's going to further my career. That's what's going to get me where I belong. And you mean, God, wait, 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 after I do my 60-hour a week, you mean God actually wants me to come in and spend time serving? Yeah. For free? Yeah. Because when I do, I declare out loud that my gifts and my abilities and my talents weren't given for my forward movement to get me somewhere. They were given to me so that the kingdom would go somewhere. And it's worship when I serve. We said to you, hey, singing isn't really, that's not worship. That's not the heart of worship. Because here's the deal. If, sing, if singing was worship, then only people with good voices would be good worshipers, which means I'm out. Anybody else out with me? It's not the singing, it's the declaring. See, what, what we do in that moment is we sit there and we say, God, this mouth that used to curse, this, this mouth that used to speak gossip, th this mouth that used to say words of harm rather than words of blessing, is changed. And now I choose to use this mouth to declare your goodness and your glory and to say out loud what I believe in my heart. Which is why, guys, even if you can't hold a tune, you need to mumble. Because something happens in my heart and something happens in the ears of God when he hears you and I declare our faith. And as embarrassing as it might be, it's worship. Now, here's the deal. You and I could spend a lifetime giving God little bits at a time. You and I could spend a lifetime going, oh, okay, God, I'll tell you what, um, uh, you can have my career, you just can't have my boyfriend. Uh, you, you can have my finances, um, you just can't have my children. And we, we could spend a lot, that God just has to bring us back to this altar over and over and over and over again because you, you realize at the end of the day, God won't be satisfied till he's asked every question, till he's brought every item here and said, do you love that more than you love me? It's why Scripture says what Scripture says. Grab your Bibles one more time. Romans chapter 12. If you go toward the back of your Bible, Romans chapter 12. Verse 1.
Here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of, next word, worship. You get what he just said? You said, look, look, look. Let's not, let's not peace, just put your life on the altar. Just, just put the whole thing there. Because that would be an act of worship. Matter of fact, King James Version, when it renders this verse, says, it would be the reasonable thing to do. Give my entire life to God. And I know some of you are going, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 reasonable? I mean, I thought, I thought God gave me this life. I thought he said, okay, this is your life, go live. You know, I'm supposed to honor, but... And scripture comes back and says, no, no, no. In light of what God's done for you, the only reasonable thing for a believer to do is to place their life on the altar in worship. I'm nine years old, and you guys know my story. You know that my parents got divorced, and I'm not, I'm not going to throw mud or drag us through the gutter today, but just suffice it to say that, that what my dad did in the course of the divorce and then in the years following the divorce just absolutely destroyed my vision of men. So when I'm nine, my uncle, who owned a landscape company, invited me to come over on weekends and mow lawns with him. And I would go, and finally that next summer, he said, well, hey, why don't you just come mow lawns all summer long? And being competitive like I am, I, my thing was, even as a nine-year-old, I'm going to mow the entire front and back and get my lawnmower back and in the van before my uncle can trim the edges and sweep. So I ran. I ran across yards, 13, 14 yards a day, all summer long. My uncle offered to pay me, you ready? $2 a day. And on first blush, you might go, wow. I mean, here's a kid, his image of men is blown, I mean, and now his uncle's taken advantage. Wow. And truth be told, you couldn't be further from the truth. That as I had the opportunity to ride in that van with my uncle and have conversations with him about what it meant to be a man, to watch him go home and bless his wife and how he treated her, to watch him take his family to church every Sunday. And I will tell you today that every understanding, every pillar I have in my life about what it means to be a man begins with my Uncle Marty. And I would tell you that if the offer were made, I would go mow yards with him for free because of what he did for me. Scripture says, in light of what Jesus did for you, the most reasonable thing you could do is put everything on that altar.
Because Scripture simply says, that the, says, look, let's just be honest. You and I were in trouble. You and I were in je- Let's just say it. You and I were headed to hell. And Jesus, Jesus, who didn't have any sin, didn't have any need, decided to make a swap for you and me. Decided to go to a cross so he could trade himself for us. And you get that in that moment, it was like exchanging a diamond for beer cans. If you want to talk about the the difference, the disparity between what you and I were worth and what it was diamonds for beer cans. And Scripture simply says, in light of what he did, you and I placing ourselves on this altar is only reasonable. That you and I should be able to say to God on any given moment, no, 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 no. Here's the answer to the question. There is nothing you could ask me for that I worship more than you. It's all up for grabs. Which suddenly, all of a sudden, service doesn't look like a big issue anymore, does it? All of a sudden, whether I go to church on Sunday, I mean, that, that's not even an issue anymore if he has it all. If we've done the reasonable act worship so here's the deal we've already said to you that in this series we're going to ask you to move one to move one step so here's what I need to know here's what God needs to know what would that one step be I mean truth be told probably everyone in this room as we've had the conversation already knows what it is that God would say put on the altar We've already had this discussion before. I've already asked before. What would one step look like in your life? In worship. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we we simply come before you and we get it. We get that there's a question that your heart needs to know that our heart needs an answer. Is there anything in my life that I worship, that I hold in higher regard than my God? And God, I'm just going to ask you today to give us the courage to give you right place in our life, to be able to say without apology and without hesitation, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing I can buy. There's no boyfriend that I can date. There's no drug that I can take. There is nothing that I hold in higher esteem than my Lord. He is who I worship. In Jesus' precious name.